Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today in Johannesburg is Professor Antje Schumann who works in the Political Studies Department at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. She is also a fellow at the Wit Center for Diversity Studies. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. To kick off, your career has seen you live and work in several countries. You're with the America Institute at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany the American and Black Studies and English-Speaking Cultures Department of the University of Bremen in Germany, at the University of Paris, France, University of Orleans, France, before moving to University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. Indeed. You also have a very broad scope of, of research interests, some of which I'll, I'll list briefly, feminist theories and methodologies, gender-based violence, critical diversity studies with a special focus on the intersection of race, gender, class, and sexuality, body and identity politics, post-colonial theory, memory politics. Can you please share with us a few of the highlights uh, from your research? Thank you. Yeah, you know, it looks like as if these are very wide selection of topics, and in one way it is, but in another one it is not, because the interesting part is, I think, if we'd like to understand the conditions we're currently living on and why some people are included and others are excluded, how it is that some are privileged and others are facing discrimination um, and are underprivileged, then I think all these topics are coming together. Um, They're intersecting with each other, they're reinforcing each other, um, and they speak to each other. And that is, I think, where my, my interest starts. So I think I'm interested in wherever I live, in whatever context I am, um, what are the similarities and differences across countries around the issues of why do we have high levels of violence and discrimination against certain kind of people and groupings, who's benefiting from this, and what are the historic legacies, um, which are feeding still today into certain unfair social conditions. And that is where where the topics around homophobia, violence against women, racism, um, abject poverty or other forms of socioeconomic privilege and therefore socioeconomic exclusion of others, where they come together. Um, So race, gender, class and sexuality plus, of course, other forms of discrimination are are speaking to each other. So in the end, uh, it's not that wide, conceptually speaking, as one might think. And... Globally speaking, where we are, we see that a lot of gains we seem to have made in many places are actually, we're losing them again. So forms of exclusion are resurfacing, privileged structures of privilege seem to be reinforced again um, by multiple groupings in different countries, in different forms and styles. And uh, we see this partly in South Africa, we see this partly in the US, it doesn't matter where we look to Germany as well. And I think it's a quite a, 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 an interesting but also dangerous moment. Do you think it's a case of of apathy, of when we feel as though movements have have made ground, gained ground, that we go, we're here, we've made it, 
and people become complacent and they don't keep on at the issues. Yeah, I think partly that is a, I mean, it's difficult to kind of answer that question without context, but I think uh, there is, y you can have different political strategies which address uh, which will address forms of exclusion and um, and privilege which produces that exclusion and i think a lot of social movements have tried to address these forms of exclusion or violence um, through trying to institutionalize politically certain mechanisms which address these exclusions and discriminations and as much as I would say in certain ways that's beneficiary, important, but what we often then tend to think, okay, now we've done it, we can tick it off the list, we have established it, and now it's fine. Either we go home and we can have our own peace now, or we move on to the next uh, item on the shopping list which we want to achieve. And I think what the current moment shows us that we constantly have to remain vigilant and we cannot lean back and assume once we've achieved something, we are in a safe space now. I can give you many different experiences and uh, of, of different social movements and contexts, but I think one very much close to home is that we had national headlines in 2012-13 about a so-called sex pest at the University of the Witwatersrand where exclusively uh, male professors have harassed students um, because it made headlines, because people like you picked that up, it was in the media, the university has felt it needs to respond to this proactively and has put suggestions in and implemented uh, recommendations as made by gender activists, academics, lawyers inside the university. We thought now we're fine, we have an operational unit which is dealing with complaints, which is organizing disciplinary hearings around the perpetrators, it's victim-centered, it was cutting-edge legally speaking, we've done really well with the support of the administration. We leaned back, went back into our disciplines, did our work there, and now we're seeing that these structures are undermined. And these are people in positions of power, mostly. They have access to resources to push back. And that's what we see in the United States as well in the aftermath of the Me Too movement. This is the context where certain things are achieved. In our case, structural reforms, policy reforms, in other forms where media suddenly is paying attention. And then we, we see a pushback. And that's what we have. And this speaks to the issue, I think, of having independent structures because if you've got perpetrators mm. or let's say people who are involved within the institution are, that are part of the power mm -hmm. component because that's what politics is it's about these power relationships and power dimensions which is why you need to have the independent body that can look at things objectively absolutely i agree with you and in a way that's what should happen but then the mechanism must be put safe so that not old boys networks can reemerge where somebody calls people on the echelons and say, hey, I'm not happy with that process I'm getting here. Can you please help me? These kind of things are, are problematic. And this is what always can happen because we are humans. And uh, so in, if we kind of develop structures which are parallel states within an institution, then that's a problem. 
So it's, uh, I think, in, the, in, 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 a, in a wider context outside of the university I'm, I'm working in, and I think these problems my university faces is a problem that all universities in South Africa face, right? I think not just universities, I think yeah. all institutions. All institutions. Because it's part of yeah. a culture yeah. that, that has, has come up. And this is, I think, we are very clear that we also want to have men, for instance, who champion this. It's actually incredibly important that in the context of discrimination against women, particularly gender-based violence, particularly sexual harassment in the workplace, that men stand in solidarity with women and come forward because men can talk to men sometimes in different ways. They are listened to in different ways and strategically this might be in certain moments some, something a movement or a network can employ very tactically. Looking at the gender-based violence aspect, I've just pulled some statistics here on, and I'm always shocked when I look at these figures, and in fact horrified. Over 90% of sexual offences are committed against women. And it's estimated that almost 30% of those crimes go unreported. And in the last 10 years, according to the South African Police Service statistics, so between 2008 to 2018, there were 584,497 sexual offences reported. The numbers are not going down. If anything, the numbers are increasing year on year. What is it that we're doing wrong? Are we taking on too much of a, a, a victim support mentality and not trying to stop new victims from occurring? So given the work that you've done within the gender-based violence section, what have been some of your findings? Well, the first question, are we are the numbers increasing or not, is a difficult one to answer because what I think what we can see, at least also in the time span of a decade and a bit in South Africa, what we see is that the public awareness in a way is shifting. Um, we currently at the university have a, a, a vice chancellor who, is, who thinks it's good for him to present himself as proactively combating these things. So it seems to be that in the public realm, you can, you can earn plus points. The, sh the discourse is shifting. It's, people are more aware of these things and people utilize also talking about these things, right? Um, on the other hand, I feel also that amongst young women, there is a stronger sense of um, this is not right and I have to do something about it. And that might then also lead to more reporting. So that's one way to look at it. On another way, lens, which is differently, we, if we look at it, then I think we are in a condition in South Africa where we have an increase in socioeconomic um, inequality. We have an increase in a general kind of like sense of, of, of violence generally spreads in, in South Africa on multiple levels. Um, and I think that is something which automatically also leads to an increase in gender-based violence. Um, and then we need to break it down into the different kind of like, they're different um, framings of how different people try to make sense of this phenomenon. And some would say it's a part of a backlash. So the more women generally have gained visibility in society, in a way also some form of legal uh, kind of uh, protection, the more f men feel sidelined, the more re they retaliate 
um, in, in, in these f direct forms. Others um, argue it has to do also in South Africa with a, with a kind of endemic forms of gang culture and forms of violence even perpetuated of men amongst men, a very high large number of people um, who are prison population, either um, just during the investigation or convicted already, and that these are spaces where a lot of violence takes place, which then filters back into society and where gender-based violence becomes rather a weapon um, in, in a different kind of sense. You have a very, very long history of slavery and colonialism and then apartheid where human life, particularly black human lives, were... were you know, not considered to be worth anything. There's a long culture of impunity which goes back centuries, particularly impunity around white male perpetrators of all kind of violence. So I think these 20 years into democracy, 20 plus years into democracy are really, really a short period of time to rectify a long culture of generally of violence, which under particular conditions is also showing itself in its gendered nature as well as it's in, in its sexualized nature. So it, it, we have a high level in South Africa also of violence against male performing women, um, against women who have same-sex desires. Um, so they are particularly singled out. So there are multiple aspects mm. to it which we know little about still. It's a very complex topic and it carries a lot of baggage as well and I think that's that's one of the factors which you know you you've spoken about on yours is is memory politics mm. but I think this is also part of your the, the memory that you you bring from generational mm. memory that yeah. you that you live out some of your work incorporates feminist theory social movements and memory politics as I mentioned earlier and given that South Africa is about to go next week in fact to our uh, sixth democratic election it's unfortunate we don't have any female presidential nominees. But the area that I'm, I'm looking at here is the world over, there are not many female politicians as, as leaders. Uh, Angela Merkel, Germany, Theresa May, Great Britain, Erna Solberg, Norway, Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand, are a few that come to mind. From an African point of view, we had Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, we had Joyce Banda, and now the only sitting female president in the continent is Sahele Work Zoweda of Ethiopia. In your opinion, why do you think we have so few female leaders? Well, I think it's, it's the question is why and where. So, I mean, these are kind of like... Female leaders... Country, uh, context, mm. as the where? Yeah, I think, I mean, female... Uh, look... Politics happen on a classic representational level where you normally have a party or multiple parties which have internal dynamics um, which then nominate candidates in a particular democratic context which is more or less patriarchal or more or less open to female leadership, right? So that's the one thing. There's another form of politics which happens outside of party structures, which are social movements, civil society, etc., and these contexts are vastly different from country to country. So the question is difficult to answer. Why do we have n not less on the continent globally in Germany? I mean, Germany is the f it's the first one. And I don't think a female candidate will follow suit. Um, but another question that I think then comes to mind, what do we gain 
through uh, female leaders, right? I don't think that Theresa May is currently doing a very well, uh, a very good job if we watch it. And I have a lot of critique to certain politics um, around um, Angela Merkel's um, kind of tenure in in the in that position, right? So. Personally, I'd say, of course, for equality reasons in principle, we must have more female leadership on all levels of society, from the corporate sector, the CEOs, the boardrooms, into straight into governance structures, right? On the other hand, I also want to caution to assume that simply because a woman is is leading, um, that this automatically will lead to more women-friendly politics um, to stay in the context of politics, right? And, and it doesn't, it which doesn't. has always been another surprising factor yeah. for me. Yeah. No, but I think that Simone de Beauvoir has written about this already beautifully in the 1940s, where she would say um, class trumps gender that was in the context of France at the time, right? I think in South Africa very often we have race Trump's gender or race and class Trump's gender, right? So where white women would rather be in solidarity with white men than actually be in solidarity with black people, men and women. Um, where class status is more kind of like aligning with other people's class status rather. So I think this is complicated. Personally, I think it's not really about how I would always go for a progressive male candidate who is truly implementing progressive politics, which automatically then will also include um, issues around gender equality and how to achieve gender equality rather than a conservative female candidate, which probably, let's say, has conservative political economic kind of um, policies in her hand back then but uh, those will disadvantage women because let's say we are going for further privatization we are going for further neoliberal structures in economic uh, policies and as a logic consequence um, women fall are the first ones vulnerable groupings are the first ones who fall under the under who thrown under the bus within a particular kind of economic context and so I think we need to be very careful with putting all our efforts into we need to have more female leadership in principle. We need to be selective. So despite seeing low numbers at, at the top of the, the leadership board, one of the things that I've found intriguing is when we look at the interparliamentary union, when they have got um, representation of women in parliament, Worldwide, It always surprises me that first world countries like uh, the USA are ranked 78th, the United Kingdom 39th, Germany 47th, Denmark was uh, 25th, but then countries in Africa, Rwanda sits at number one, Namibia 7, South Africa 10th, Senegal 11th. And I think that this always comes to a point of, of questioning why women in first world countries, which let's say they've they've got everything going for them, there seems to be a lack of interest within the political space, whereas in third world countries, you've got a much stronger presence and and interest and acceptance within the parliamentary structures. Well, I think there are different reasons, and again, even in the 
so-called first world, if you look at different countries, Germany comes from a fascist past um, which has put forward incredibly conservative gender relations even into then the democratic area thereafter. So till today we have a lot of policy frameworks which are encouraging women to work part-time, be stay-at-home moms, etc., which is of course then reflected on the job market, including also the political sphere, right? Um, it has to do with, with health care and, and, and child care facilities. In Germany, we have a very different schooling system and, and caring system, let's say, than France, for instance, right? School ends at lunchtime. We still don't have enough kindergartens and so forth. So these things are really, really difficult. We have fa- a lot of families where women actually cannot go to work because they just don't find adequate health, uh, child care for their children. And Germany is not yet having the same structures as South Africa, where there is a lot of historically produced cheap labor, which does these kind of privatized child care services, which then are not presented through the state structures. So you have middle class women who have of black emerging black middle class women and white middle class women who have access to certain opportunities. Um, And then you have, of course, working class women who don't have access to these services, but somehow make do um, maybe on behalf of how their family works, the education of their children, etc. So there are different Mm -hmm. contexts. But I think in the global south, you had decolonial movements in the 20th century when the South Africa, the anti-apartheid movement, which led to highly politicized context. The political framework was renegotiated in the second half of the 20th century, and that made way to accommodate structurally um, gender issues in different ways. Thinking about that point now, as I look at, look at the countries, the nations I mentioned earlier and as, as mm. first world nations, they're old, they're established, mm. they have these infrastructures, these, these frameworks. Whereas but these are also long established patriarchal infrastructures, e- exactly. right? So something that has been established for a long time is sometimes much more difficult to change as if you are in the remaking right now. I mean, the, 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 the South African constitution, I think, is a really fantastic example, um, which has been done six years before the turn of the century. And it, it's one of the still most radical and kind of progressive constitutions you find globally. You have the whole chapter seven institutions, the the gender machineries here, which in principle, I think, are, are thought through in ways um, that were encouraging. And they were able at the time to accommodate these institutionalizations in ways that other con- countries were not, like Germany got its new constitution in '48 after the Second World War. So the, the social relations which are reflected in this constitution are very different, right? But then we come back to the point we started it with. You have these institutionalized forms of trying to gain equality, these mechanisms, but then how are they implemented? How are they monitored? And how do they filter down into the way how society itself works on an everyday level down there in the streets, in the offices, etc. And there we have a disjuncture. And that's a problem. It's so interesting in looking at the frameworks, looking at the policies, but also looking at the time zones of when they were established. Mm. And uh, as you say, look, if, if Germany's constitution was in 48, South Africa in, say, what, 94. Exactly. It's a completely different, a different, different world. Different and who context. has make who has been influential in 
in drafting them. So in the German case, it was a lot of people who were under fascism, prosecuted, went to exile and came back with a socialist, communist or a social democratic at least kind of like um, agenda in mind. But yet as much as they were in certain aspects uh, maybe progressive for what it meant at the time, there were still majority men, right? So to, to speak about issues around, uh, around gender, right? Mm. So I, I think I know that South Africa had a strong back then forming itself uh, a a woman's movement which formed itself around the the kind of lobbying to get certain things into the constitution Um, so these are the contexts but we always have to be vigilant around legal representation of certain issues in representative structures and political mechanisms and remain vigilant of them being erased or undone. I mean, we see this at the moment in in European con- countries um, very well, and in the U.S. So in the U.S., there's an onslaught happening at the moment on the possibility for women to terminate their abortion, and I think it's a matter of time if they will actually succeed to recriminalize it. In Europe, we are seeing that in a in a country such as hung- Hungary, gender studies have been taken out of the books. So there are no more gender studies in U- U- Hungarian universities anymore. Why? They have been established. They have been taken out. Well, this is something what our research currently finds, that neo-authoritarian and neo-fundamentalist movements and governments are having a few a few topic points they put forward very strongly because they feel that is something that helps them easily to mobilize. One is the whole notion around immigration and casting refugees and immigrants as responsible for all social ills, which then means that politicians don't have to take responsible responsibility for internally produced conditions for these social ills. The second one is gender, homosexuality and gender are two other aspects which are incredibly um, hot spots for right-wing mobilization. And and um, gender is considered to be, well, people are either men, people are either men or women, so why do we need to study this? This is nonsense. The way how Casta Semenya has been framed and is, has been treated in South Africa, and for instance how the news are, are reporting about this, is quite an outstanding exception to the general emerging norm right now that we either have men or women and that's it. And that there's a spectrum of identities and performances out there and different bodies um, which all have the right to exist equally um, is is not something that's embraced anymore. And that's another part of the pushback um, that we find uh, is taking place. So gender is more and more framed as an ideology um, which doesn't remain and require any form of expertise. And then we find women themselves who are reappropriating feminist discourses and say, I'm a true feminist here because I make sure that German women are not um, raped or abused by all these immigrants and foreigners. So you are even seeing how right-wing, xenophobic or homophobic narratives are fed into the hijacking of certain feminist narratives. And, and that's what we see also here in South Africa, for instance, well, at my university, where we have somebody who says, I'm championing these kind of procedures and transparency, but then is perpetuating what slang we would say old boys networks, right? 
Um, so these things happen from left and right wing kind of like people who want to be in positions of power, or want to come or maintain in positions of power and do this in a unilateral, non-consultative style. And the best way to do this is to discredit expertise. It's a complex world that we live in. And when I listen and play back the dialogue that we're having in, in my head, I almost feel that as human, as a human race, we often end up repeating scenarios over history, which I find the most unfortunate thing that we, we don't seem to be learning from our mistakes to be progressive and to move ahead and, and to not repeat horrific human rights violations of, of the past. Um, like you've, you've, you've said, if gender studies are being taken off of a, of, off of a curriculum, hmm. That's a regression for me. Absolutely. It's, it's not a progression. Yeah. Well, that the interesting thing is people do learn. So this is done in, in Hungary. This is done clearly through an openly right-wing and, and neo-authoritarian kind of government. In the context of my university, these things are done within a lefty liberal narrative, which says, no, 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 I'm completely for these instruments to be there as long as they don't put our university at risk. Um, so suddenly you, you can play both narratives at the same time, and that's where an interesting learning curve takes place. So how can I get rid about things and undermine things that are politically, um, well, not helping me or my friends um, and that are politically uncomfortable for the group of people I belong to? In this case, these are heterosexual men. And yet at the same time, how can I present myself as championing the very same structures I'm undermining, right? So I think there are learning curves, um, and that means those who try to stabilize and institutionalize these structures and then keep them health and, and, and safe need to also learn how do we respond to these kind of pushbacks, which come from, as I said, come from different directions. It, it's a community. Yeah. And it's a dem democratic community. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you, given your, um, let's say, your, your experiences in, in South Africa, your experiences in, in studying the field of, of political studies, is coming up to our, our election after having had a, a young democracy of, of being in, in place for 25 years, do you think that South Africa is in the right place in terms of its life cycle? Oh, this is difficult because it would assume that there are templates out there and I, I'm afraid they are not. But indeed, I think there is something very interesting that from my very kind of personal biographic perspective uh, coming from the German context have observed and that I found quite interesting. And I, I wrote about it in, uh, in a study about the Fees Must Fall movement, which took place in 2015-16 primarily. And I think what we saw here is that we saw a repolitization through the young generation in a fashion that reminded me of the 68 movement as it took place particularly in Germany. And that was and, and, and the similarity I, I I find striking in a sense of that both happened about 20, 25 years into a young democracy. Young democracies which carried on so much baggage from the past as they were presenting themselves as young democracies. So in Germany, the 1968 movement was a, of students was very much around 
de what they call denazification of institutional structures. And I think the fees must fall movement here has in a similar fashion with a different kind of radicalness than the previous generations demanded a decolonization of institutions. And at least in the beginning, before this massive onslaught from state structures, police, etc., secret, uh, uh, secret services, etc., were hitting back at the movement. But in the beginning, when it was still running a little bit more on their own terms, it was a really fascinating movement to observe in terms of um, basic democratic structures being internally developed, which were very inclusive. And it was inclusive for queer people. It was inclusive for women. And... Um, they try to see how these different forms of exclusion and discrimination are intersecting and what are the colonial kind of repertoires that are reinscribed again and again and again. And they challenge that. And I think this was a seminal moment in the South African democratic era. On other levels, I think um, what is a big problem is, is the economic situation of South Africa, which is disenfranchising so many, many people. Um, and which is so much um, still lending a helping hand, a supporting structure to those people who already have a lot or too much. In that, if we discuss forms of redistribution, I think, again, we see on all in the whole spectrum, we have not a proper gender analysis. Even when you, you listen to uh, the State of the Nation address and we have, oh, we have all these infrastructure programs, we don't have gender budgeting. We don't look where does the state money go to and to which extent is if I build more streets and bridges, then this will be mo money that will primarily be received by men on the top echelons of those who are owning the building companies and at the bottom those who are then working and implementing and kind of creating and constructing the streets. If I do infrastructure in more hospitals or schoolings, uh, school systems, then I have a different picture mm. because these are primarily female dominated jobs, right? So we need to have a much wider cast analysis of how is particularly gender inequality but also forms of racism reinscribed again and again, sometimes with intention and sometimes in unintended ways. And that's why I think we need much more research. And this is where I feel the social sciences and the humanities are, are not valued enough in the contribution they can make and they do make if they listen to. We are unfortunately running out of, of time in our conversation today. Given that the theme of, of elections, of, of politics, of not just about having women within the political infrastructure and systems, but I would say about exercising the responsibility of voting, because you, your, your vote does count. Uh, so given that, that context, could you please share a, a few words of, of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to younger ladies that are, are listening to us today? Well, I have to say, I feel these days I'm learning myself a lot from the young generation, <laughs> actually. So I think it's a real kind of people need to listen to each other across generations. Um, and I feel in this context, um, young people have a lot to say and a lot to give. And they are quite alert and, and well informed already when I receive them on first or second year level in many ways. And I think this is incredibly encouraging. 
I think for young women, particularly those who are passionate about the issues that that we spoke about today in this show, is um, whatever they do, they should find a field of of engagement where they are passionate about it. I can see this by the students I supervise. Those students who work on a topic they are most passionate about, that's where they excel because this is where their heart is and that is where they are then also much more willing to go the extra mile. So I think passion in what you do informs how you do it and that informs that you mostly then have more more chances to do it well. So one has to face also that one might has to face negative consequences. But I'm pretty sure that these are the people who will fall on their feet and and will learn from these kind of situations and will have new opportunities where they bring can bring expertise to as long as you're passionate and do what you do, you do it well. And I can see this um, amongst young women who I feel are much more outspoken about the experiences, very good in analyzing that their experiences very often are not individual experiences, but collective and systemic forms of discrimination. And I feel also there is less and less of, how do you say that in English, properly bickering at each other. I feel women need to listen to each other and be kind and less judgmental with each other in order to form these networks that you you spoke about before. And I think that's that's what we need. And that's what young young women are also doing, I think, in, 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 in their microcosms. I think that's very valid advice, pursuing your passion with conviction and overriding any negativity that that may arise and um, moving on and, and rising up from it. So thank you very much for, for sharing all of the information that you've imparted today, particularly looking at some of the theoretical aspects on politics, the underlying infrastructure and frameworks, which I almost think is it's almost construed as invisible, but it's there. It's got a lot of historical context, which is now also coming to, to the front and, and manifesting mm. itself. And it provides explanations for, for the way the world is today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me here and uh, for succeeding with this show um, for so long already. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. And we, we wish you every success in the university and, and pursuit with your, your students and research. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Antia Schumann, who works in the Political Studies Department at the University of the Witwatersrand and is also a fellow at the Witt Center of Diversity Studies.